Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets, for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Monday morning, the 29th of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. As the schools return this week, there's going to be a lot of attention on primary school children in oversized classrooms, secondary school students denied a place on the school bus and college students finding it impossible to rent somewhere to live. But in the weeks and months ahead of us, uh, the focus will be on education and helping our young people to develop the skills necessary as they make their way in the world. In Galway, the National University of Ireland is introducing a new online school programme. It's called Sex on Our Screens and the idea of it is uh, to educate adolescents about pornography. It's been developed by a psychologist, Dr. Kate Dawson, who told the Times online newspaper this weekend that young people can't contextualise the information in the same way that adults do if they don't have an additional source of information about sex and healthy relationships and consent and communication, then pornography can become their only source of information, which is the last thing we want. That uh, could very well be uh, the situation with children who have been sexually offending uh, themselves, uh, who've sexually abused other children. And there were some 102 under-18s charged with sexual offences last year compared to 51 in 2011. As the Times put it, the number of children on sex charges have doubled in a decade. Let's speak now to Nolene Blackwell, uh, who's uh, the CEO of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Very good morning to you, Nolene, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. it's very hard to understand how a child could ever uh, get the idea, let alone carry out uh, the sexual uh, abuse of another child. Yeah, except I think it's an idea maybe that has been around for a lot longer than we've known about, but because we have not wanted to think about children engaging in sexually in sexual behaviour at all, let alone sexual offensive behaviour, I think we maybe haven't heard the extent to which this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. Before they were watching pornography, in other words. 
yeah, yeah. Before mm. before all of the internet stuff, yeah. but it, that does make it much harder, and that makes it much easier. I tell you, it's not really that children necessarily have to go out looking for pornography on their screens now. Parents will tell you all the time, uh, and teachers will as well, that pornography is coming at children, mm. that they're often only a click or two away from it, even when they're not looking for it. And uh, and this has to feed in to some of the um, some of the offending oh, I think we don't have enough good objective data on this but we, so we have to speculate I'm so sorry Nolene I'm sorry the, the line dropped out is there you're saying um, uh, we lost you there for a minute you're, 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 say, you're saying that uh, pornography has to be a factor in it is it? It has to be right, so yeah. maybe there was more there uh, than we knew before mm. and it's been better investigated but at the same time the truth is that there is such a, a push on pornographic information on the internet right now that children will find it even when they're not looking for it. And because children are now children up to the age of 18, uh, 17 for sexual consent, uh, you are they're going to be curious as well. So the trouble with pornography, of course, is that it is not real. It is objectifying. It's not about people. And where children don't have a balancing uh, to know whether it is right or wrong for those who are offending but also for those who are being pressured Mm. into sexual activity they think when they see pornography and a lot of pornography let's face it is about very young children being abused and and children being abused Mm. so they think that this is normal and expected of them and a huge part of the problem is exactly as Kate Dawson says that lack of context that lack of other ways of understanding what they're looking at, ways of understanding what they're looking at is not real, it's not normal, it's not what's expected. Because, look, even the best of children and parents are going to find it hard to talk about sexual activity. Um, And I know that it is necessary Mm. that there be frank conversations in the home. But the truth is that an awful lot of children and young people are this day, this week, preparing to go even to third level, having come through their entire first and second level education with hearing almost nothing about what a healthy relationship looks like, about what consent looks like, and about what's not real, about what's pornographic, what's what's objectifying people, what's fantasy. Hmm. But uh, if you're saying that pornography is a factor in uh, children abusing other children, uh, well then obviously there's more to it and you said that there was a, a lot of children abusing children before uh, pornography was so easily accessible. If that's the case, what's at play? Are people born that way? Or are they born with a, a predisposition? No, they are not. If you look at uh, how even if you have very small children in a creche or something or even in a family or a play setting, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> you will find that children can be guided about what is and is realistic and normal behaviour. So, for instance, and uh, I think this is a, an example I possibly overuse, but in a crash situation or at home, children will try biting another child uh, to just test it out and will be told that's not acceptable behaviour because it's not respectful of another child. They will try 
pushing and hitting. And again, with any luck, they will be taught what the difference is between respectful behaviour and bullying. And children and young people are testing the norms in relation to, to all sorts of activity. And as they grow through their adolescent and teenage years, one of the issues they have to address are their, their own development, where they are engaging, in, they're sexually curious, where they need to know what respect looks like, where they need to know what healthy relationships look like. They're, they haven't been getting that information. And, and the internet is is a multiplier by huge standards. The last school um, programme in this area was set in 1999, Michael. Mm. It is not only just a different century, Mm. it is a different life experience for young people growing up today. And they have not been given the courtesy and the help that they need in an education setting to understand what respect looks like, what healthy relationships look like. And that's why... Currently, the Minister for Education, before the end of the last school year, announced a consultation in relation to a new programme for schools dealing with healthy relationships, bullying, respect, Mm. consent, all of these things. That consultation is out there at the moment to close in October, if if I have it right. And, And at the end of that consultation, I would hope, and we in WNA Crisis Centre, anyone working with young people who suffer terrible harm when this goes wrong for them. They can suffer terrible harm. We hope that at the end of that consultation, within this school year, finally, our schools will play their reasonable part in forming our children emotionally, forming our young people so that they can understand what they're being, what they're under pressure about, so they can understand what, that pornography isn't real, that they don't have to share intimate images, that it's wrong to expect them to do all of that. And hopefully that will equip people not to be victims then of sexual offences. And hopefully it will also help people to understand that what they're doing is offensive and wrong and harmful and often even criminal. So you would hope that the, the level at which young people engage in actual criminal criminal activity would slow down or stop. Okay, if anybody listening to us would like to talk about uh, sexual uh, abuse as a result of this conversation, we'd just like to mention that Dublin Rape Crisis Centre offers a 24-hour helpline. You can speak to somebody at 1-800-77-8888. That's 1-800-77-8888. Nolene, tell me uh, what child sexual abuse of children or by children uh, looks like. Um, uh, uh, we're not talking about 102 under 18s charged with sexual offences. Yeah. Uh, is it as bad as, as it sounds? Uh, because as you said, a child is considered to be a minor in law up to the age of 18. Uh, and yeah. uh, 17 is the age of consent. Um, could it be that we've 17 year olds having sex in what is a consensual relationship 
but it's deemed to be statutory rape because of their ages. Uh, but really, um, it's not the type of abuse that automatically springs to mind. Yeah, so so that is a possibility. And because we don't hear the details of the crimes to a great extent until they go to court, that's a possibility, Michael. But actually, what the Gardaí do, because the guards are getting better every year at investigating this type of crime. And very often, children who engage in unlawful sexual activity are sent on diversion programmes. They're diverted into better ways. Um, uh, They don't uh, go forward to the criminal court. So it's actually very likely that those 102 charges, first of all, it doesn't necessarily mean 102 children all that you know there can be multiple charges but but the reality is that it is a very serious situation that over a hundred children and young people in this jurisdiction are being charged with criminal offences because it's kind of the final step at what ages though how young are we talking about so so the data is really not good enough on this area at all because those a lot of them will be dealt with in the children's court uh, Oberstown for instance, which is the child detention centre, won't tell us how many children they have in detention uh, because it could help to reveal their identity. We do know that young teenagers are coming to the attention of the Gardaí for very serious offences, as well as children 15, 16. I mean, the thing is that 17 is the age of consent, but there is this system whereby if it is um, a, a relationship where the two children are near in age mm. um, there's a there's a defence available uh, for older children um, to, to, to recognise what used to be called, although it's too nice a term, the Romeo mm. and Juliet thing mm. where two young people fall in love uh, at about the same age. Okay. But the reality is that the cases that are going before the courts are very serious. Okay. Very often um, the children who are charged are, are often victims themselves as well but nonetheless they can be committing very serious harm. Okay, that's that's what I want to ask you about that. really, about uh, the age of uh, the children who are uh, offending uh, and I believe it can be uh, of all ages and uh, the offence can be from touching up to rape uh, and indeed it can even involve grooming. I read that over the weekend uh, which is hard to believe uh, of young children but uh, at what stage is a child responsible or is it that they're not responsible for their actions because they're a minor? They're, they're not legally liable for their actions because they're a minor. It's a tiny bit complicated where a minor engages in sexual offences uh, with another minor. But for the most part, no child under Uh, 15 for sure, um, and maybe up to 17, no child under 15 can consent to sexual activity. So on that basis, they are not responsible for their actions. And and often you would have heard, even, you know, just over the years, um, that that children were coming on to older people and the rest of it. That's not possible. They are children. They do not have the mental capacity to make that decision. Okay, but in the case of two young children, let's say a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, if a 10-year-old yes. was to rape a 7-year-old, would the 10-year-old be responsible for their actions? 
yeah, a, a ten actually, a, a ten-year-old would in in theory. But again, uh, the, the way that those investigations tend to happen is to identify whether, in fact, the child has the mentality to um, to carry out that offence. So it's it's very very complicated. It seems from all that we hear, from the investigations that go on and from those who are not sent into diversion programmes, that that would be a real rarity. I mean, we have seen cases come before the court of uh, very young teenagers mm. uh, coming in and, and being convicted of very serious offences uh, in relation to sexual assault. So it can happen. That tends not to be the norm. There's an awful lot of work still to be done in that particular area. But the truth probably is that you are looking at teenagers for Mm. the most part and that where it is possible, where rehabilitation is possible and where the circumstances are Mm. such that it's fair on everybody. Um, Diversion will be used. Education programmes will be used. Only if it's discovered, of course. uh, And that is one of the biggest problems because you hear people uh, telling you that uh, you know something happened thirty years ago, and and All they the they had yeah. they haven't spoken about it to anyone for thirty years because they felt exactly. embarrassed, they felt guilty, uh, uh, um, they didn't want to be a problem in their family. Uh, exactly. you, you hear all of these things all of the time. Exactly. So, so, so nobody really knows the extent of it or how much of it is going on. You can draw some conclusions from small numbers in the courts, but if there's small numbers in the courts, given the nature of what happens behind closed doors, uh, you'd have to assume that there's actually thousands of cases. Yeah, uh, yeah. But undoubt- undoubtedly, we have we have no real idea. Um, again, we we lack data here. Um, our last real big survey was back in two thousand and two. Again, twenty years ago. And um, the, uh, the Central Statistics Office is engaging in an exercise right now that might give us more information next year or the year after. But it is true, and certainly we saw on the helpline during COVID. We saw or people coming forward with issues that they had kind of managed to uh, work around, to dance around for years and even for decades, uh, coming up with issues of abuse during their childhood. But Michael, the reality as well is before we uh, before we mm. think that this is the biggest of all problems, that there is a real problem with adults, with all their wits about them, with all sorts of legal responsibilities, adults abusing children, adults grooming children, adults uh, bringing children into harm's way. And actually that is the one that there is uh, no excuse. I I, I was shocked uh, speaking to the paedophile hunter uh, as the press uh, labelled him uh, from the UK uh, who entrapped uh, a a man from County Loud there recently. I'm sure you're familiar with the case. But he was telling me, him uh, and uh, his colleagues, uh, have been carrying out this thing on the internet with uh, this virtual girl, which uh, then men start approaching. Uh, you, you couldn't give it a figure on how many men approach from uh, this jurisdiction as well as over there. But he, he said that the work that they do uh, has led to 50 arrests, 50 men who tried to meet this 13-year-old girl in a year, yes. in a year yes. only, 50 yes. men. It's unreal. Yes. Yes, yes. And and again, the Internet has made it much 
much easier to do it. And I would say, Michael, one of the things that kind of... And I've heard this given in mitigation in court cases over the years as well. For instance, where somebody is watching child pornography, which is child abuse. That's all it is. Uh, They're watching it and and somebody uh, gives in mitigation uh, on their own behalf or their lawyer gives on their behalf. Well, that they didn't actually do anything physical to a child. Whereas the internet has actually facilitated somebody in looking at somebody else sexually abuse a child, uh, causing damage to that child along the way. Mm. So the internet has facilitated abuse in an extraordinary way. It is wrong um, and, and it is just one of the ways in which I think we maybe have been too casual about um, about allowing it, about thinking that's all right, mm-hmm. about thinking it's okay to look at the abuse of a child uh, because they're in another part of the world, as far as you can mm-hmm. see. Uh, it's not all right. It's totally wrong. And I think we have to kind of say... Uh, we're, our society, something rotten has happened where we thought at any stage that okay. that was okay. All right. Well, if uh, people would like to speak to your volunteers on uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Helpline, just to repeat that number, one eight hundred seventy seven eighty eight eighty eight. That's one eight hundred seventy seven. 8888. Nolene, thanks very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Nolene Blackwell is CEO of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Michael Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM. And those oversized uh, national school classes, uh, the spaces uh, denied uh, to secondary school children hoping uh, to get a a place on uh, the school bus and uh, the lack of accommodation for college students uh, will make it a busy start of term for the Minister for Education, Norma Foley. Uh, Somebody uh, who will have a a keen interest on uh, the schools returning uh, this week is Gerard Crockwell, an independent senator and formerly president of uh, the Teachers Union of Ireland, the TUI. Uh, Senator Crockwell, good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, I'm sure the Minister has a, a lot on her plate as schools and education facilities return this week. Yes, indeed, Michael. Good morning to you and good morning to your listeners. Uh, the Minister does have a lot on her plate. Um, what what we're now seeing is, um, I suppose, the uh, ills of the past are beginning to catch up with us. Um, the First and foremost, the move to uh, free public tra- or free school transport was a good move. But it should never have been charged for. Uh, hard-pressed parents all along have been paying for uh, school transport. But we threw the doors open without checking to see if we have the resources in place mm. to actually provide the school transport. So that's going to cause a major yeah, problem. Well, obviously um, nobody saw the consequence. It was an unintended consequence, I, I think. But when you said it's free to everyone, everyone said, Jane, that's great. Uh, I'd like a, a place on the bus for my child who I, I have always driven. Uh, so you've seen this record number of applications. Absolutely. I mean, we're up at 130,000, I think, now. Mm, I think there's somewhere over 44,000 new applicants this year. Mm. That would be children moving in from national school into secondary school. uh, And that would be um, also the ones who had not availed of free transport Mm. in the past. I I think 15,000 children who who don't know their position going forward and about 10,000 of them, as things stand, uh, won't get a seat. 
yes. And sadly, some of those 10,000 are kids who would have had a seat in previous years. And uh, because of this total screw-up, uh, they're not going to have a seat this year. Um, I, I, I do not know where Bus Airden are going to find the drivers mm. uh, in, in time. And, and never mind uh, the drivers, there's only one part of the equation. Where are they going to find the buses? Well, so un- I, un- I, unintended consequence or otherwise, you're calling it a, a screw-up. Yeah, absolutely, totally. I mean, it was not carefully thought out. These announcements uh, are, are, I suppose, happy-clappy announcements in the midst of what is a crisis in the cost of living for parents. Uh, And people are not thinking through exactly what happened. I don't think they expected the numbers on school transport. But as you rightly point out, Michael, that is only one of the issues that's going to confront the minister. Mm, Probably... Uh, yes, the, the, the curriculum uh, itself uh, is uh, something that's uh, causing concern um, uh, and um, the leaving cert, uh, some of the languages, English and Irish, uh, being moved to fifth year. Um, what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I look, again, um, we find ourselves in a situation, this is the chickens coming home to roost. Back in the day when I started teaching, a teacher was employed into a full-time permanent job with a, a decent salary and they were able to move up along the incremental scale. Around about 1996-97, we changed the employment from permanent full-time jobs to hours and you had teachers working five hours a week. Nobody can survive on the income from five hours a week. Yeah. Uh, and the next year you might get seven and the year after that you might get 11 and two years after that you might be brought up to the full 22 hours teaching. Uh, Young teachers were being asked to sit in staff rooms all day in case somebody went sick and they get an opportunity to get a few extra hours. It's simply not the way to treat professionals and uh, that chicken has come home to roost in two ways, Michael. One is, why would you work in an urban area now when most of your friends and colleagues are able to work from home. Mm. So why, why, why wouldn't you seek to work from home like, like uh, uh, most other people? You can't as a teacher, clearly. So what you would do is seek to work as close to home as you possibly can. So teachers who traditionally came from Kerry, from Mayo, Galway, uh, to work in Dublin, they have no interest in coming up here now because the cost, if they can get accommodation at all, mm. the cost is exorbitant. And it's no cheaper up your neck of the woods. You guys are part of the commuter belt mm-hmm. now for, for uh, the greater Dublin area. So living on the East Coast is just a non-starter for people. We cannot fill teaching posts, which means that critical subjects like physics, maths, these are going to suffer. And if they suffer, the children that are studying are going to suffer. And once again, the minister has a massive headache here. And if premiums aren't given to teachers in urban areas, are there going to be enough teachers? I, I don't think there will be. I mean, they learned this lesson in London, oh, it must be 30 years ago now, where they brought in the living in London allowance. Uh, I think that um, from from Dundalk down as far as, as Wexford, uh, anybody working in that area, because it's all part of the commuter belt now, and possibly uh, going west as far as that lone Mullingar. Uh, I, I certainly, in my time in Blackrock, we had teachers commuting from Mullingar and from Longford mm. into Blackrock in Dublin. 
in Dublin uh, West or Dublin East, should I say? Yeah. Um, and uh, simply, that's just not on the cost of fuel today. So are they not paid enough? I, I mean, if you use the example in London, where I think they're paid about thirty-eight thousand euro, and the minister was saying that the cost of living in London is equally as expensive as it is in Dublin or, or Navan, if you like. Uh, but you get thirty-eight thousand euro as a, a teacher if you're working in the most rural of locations in this country. Absolutely, yes. And so, why, so why, why, why do teachers rural Ireland? But why, why do teachers need more money than they need in Dublin? Or in London, uh, in London, I beg your pardon. Well, look, I mean, if we we really can't compare, like with like here with London and and Ireland. If you look at our social welfare system, you get far more on social welfare in Ireland than you do in the UK. Um, they have other things which offset uh, the low social welfare, the low salaries. They have their NHS medical care system uh, in place, so they have lots of supports there. Uh, I I understand, and I may be wrong on this. But I, it used to be the case that teachers coming into London would have, um, uh, what do you call it, they would have subsidised accommodation. Mm. And if, if that's the case, I mean, it, no, then it makes perfect sense. Yeah. What about students here uh, and uh, the lack of accommodation? Uh, I take it a real crisis is about to unfold. Yeah, and you know something, Michael, this is going to uh, ricochet right across the system. I'm already getting calls from people about the number of migrants that are in the country. And God help the poor Ukrainians that are not too far from you up there living in Gormanstown under a canvas and uh, packed into hotels all over the place. It's a horrible existence for them. But a massive number of them have been in student accommodation and they must now be uh, rotated out of that where we're going to put them, I have no idea. Uh, and that's going to cause massive problems amongst that community and the communities that will have to find accommodation for them. And then you have the students. Uh, you know, every year at this time, we would get parents coming on to us about the difficulty in finding accommodation. This year, I have no idea. I would say to, to young students that listening to this program today, uh, consider going into digs. Uh, where you're living with a family. It's not ideal. I know I was young myself uh, and one likes to get out and fly one's kite as early as they can. But right now, it's about getting into college, getting into a, a good, solid education. So consider moving in with a family. Okay, if you can get a place, that is. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Yeah. Okay, thank you indeed uh, for joining thank us. You, this thank you very much, Independent Senator. Jared Crockwell is uh, former president of the TUI. Michael Reed on LMFM. House prices are more or less back uh, to their Celtic Tiger peak of 2007. Very expensive to buy a house. Very expensive to buy a house then. It's very expensive to buy a house now. It was a lot cheaper to do your shopping or fill your car with petrol or anything else in 2007 uh, than it is uh, today because of uh, the cost of living with inflation soaring and that's having an impact on prospective house buyers according to a survey from myhome.ie. They've spoken to 2,800 
161 people and let's hear a little bit more about what those people have said to the survey. Joanne Geary is the Managing Director of MyHome.ie. A very good morning to you, Joanne, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I suppose it goes without saying uh, that people don't have uh, the same buying power that they had uh, a year ago, let alone 15 years ago. Uh, But what impact is that having uh, on people's ability to get on the property ladder? Look, I mean, there's probably no surprise in this headline to a certain extent, Michael, that, you know, that this rise in cost of living is having a significant impact on all parts of the property market. Uh, We conducted this survey back in um, early August of just shy of 3,000 people across the myhome.ie site. And half of prospective um, uh, home buyers told us that the cost of living increases has affected their ability to purchase a property. And even more so, 63% of prospective renters are telling us that it has also affected their ability to rent property. Mm. With about 75% of renters telling us that they've had to look beyond their top location of choice. Now, top location of choice would also be driven by not just cost of living, about availability of stock we know is, is a real issue in the rental market and also kind of that uncertainty that's happening uh, overall within the rental sector. Okay, is it the cost of the rent or is it... Uh, the uh, spending power that people have uh, that's impacting this because we've rent pressure zones uh, so uh, if you're asked for 2,000 an extortionate amount of money perhaps uh, last year you'll be asked for 2,000 or thereabouts maybe a a, a small increase on that up to 2% isn't it Uh, but uh, then when you go to pay for your groceries or or whatever it is uh, you end up with less money to come up with that 2,000 a month Yeah look I think it's a combination of both factors um, to be honest you know, there's no doubt that, you know, the real issue in the rental market is, is twofold. It's a supply issue being driven by um, small uh, non-institutional landlords leaving the market, which has been um, a feature of the rental marketplace over the last number of years. And also that lack of supply that exists within um, all parts of the country when it comes to looking for rental property. So, I mean, that is what's driving mm. prices in terms of, of the rental market. And also then that's exacerbated by, you know, the, the continued cost of living increases that we all have to bear on a daily basis. OK, and the government so, says um, that in, in the budget next month, uh, it's hoping uh, to introduce a, a number of measures which would encourage landlords uh, to stay in the market. What would you be hoping to hear in the budget? Well, I think there's there's a few things that have been mooted, certainly, over the last few weeks. Um, in our survey, 85% of the respondents told us that the government should be doing more in terms of the property market. A lot has been done in terms of help to buy and um, the shared equity scheme and so on. But specifically on the rental market, um, in terms of, of budget intervention, um, I think there's probably two things that we'd like to see happening. We'd like to see a fairer tax treatment of... Um, those small one-off landlords and non-institutional landlords to put them on more of an even uh, playing pitch as the institutional investors in terms of tax treatment. And also we would like to see more being done for the tenant, for the renter, in terms of perhaps tax credits that could be applied um, to uh, help address some of those those issues within the, the rising cost of of rent within Mm. the market. So I think there's probably two things that we'd like to to see happening there. But, you know, our rental market has been uh, quite dysfunctional for a number of years now. 
any one measure is not going to address the issue overnight. Mm. It's and going uh, to take some time. Yeah, uh, not, one measure won't address the issues because there's a, a perfect storm of problems, isn't there? Uh, and uh, you talk uh, about supply and demand. I suppose one way of uh, helping the market to stabilise would be to build a load of houses. Uh, but that's become an awful lot more expensive uh, because of inflation and uh, the cost of building is unknown. I don't think you can get a quote from people for a lot of jobs now. Uh, they'll give you a ballpark figure, but it could be a lot more expensive by the time the work is done and they've bought uh, what's necessary to do the work. Uh, and I take it that's leading uh, to people deciding not to renovate their homes as well. Yeah, and again, this is another finding of this, this survey that we did in early August. Um, again, cost of living impact on uh, people thinking of renovating their, their properties or upgrading their properties. 45% of respondents told us that they it was affecting their ability to do some of that work to their properties, even though you know there is grant assistance there now in terms of um, bringing your property up to an appropriate um, energy efficiency rating and so on. Um, But I think what you're seeing happening here in this customer sentiment survey, and customer sentiment is very much a driver of demand in any any market, what you're seeing is that where people are feeling the pinch on a day-to-day basis, as we all are, um, they're delaying decisions. So if I thought I was going to change my windows or put in that stove or, you know, upgrade the bathroom or whatever it might be, um, and if I'm feeling the uh, cost of living increase, I will just delay that decision and kick it down the line in terms of um, my planning and, and my horizon outlook um, because I have less money in my pockets and I'm also faced with, can I get a builder? Can I get a small tradesman? Mm. What's that going to actually cost me by the time they come to quote, as, as you say, there, that uh, continued inflation there in terms of building costs? So I think where people have an opportunity to be more discretionary about their spending, they will delay a decision in this um, in this type of market, which has um, the cost of living sentiment driving it. Okay, uh, not particularly nice reading, uh, but very interesting nonetheless. Joanne, thank you indeed uh, for joining us Thanks, on the programme. Joanne Geary is the managing director of myhome.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. It's hard to believe that an insurance company wouldn't want your money, isn't it? But there's 45 sectors and subsectors, according to the Alliance for Insurance Reform, who are struggling to get covered by an underwriter. Let's speak to Peter Boland, who's the director with the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Very good morning to you, Peter, and thanks as always for joining us on the programme this morning. You're asking the government to intervene in this. That's correct, Michael. So uh, I suppose, first of all, we have to acknowledge the progress that has been made. So uh, quite a number of the big ticket reform items have already gone through, and uh, motorists um, are starting to benefit. So your listeners, if their private motor insurance is due up for renewal in the next while, should be expecting in around a 10 to 15% reduction, mm. uh, all other things being equal. Um now, the benefits haven't passed on to the liability sector and there are a couple of additional reforms necessary to get that over the line, particularly in areas we've talked about before, like duty of care and the reform of the Personal Injuries Assessment Board. But what we're starting to see in the last while, Michael, is uh, a divergence between sectors that can get cover, albeit at unaffordable levels, 
and sectors that simply cannot get cover. Uh, And we have a concern that that latter sector, the ones who can't get cover, uh, is going to be an issue for the longer term because there's a change in the way that insurers are insuring. So it it used to be that the basic principle of insurance was that uh, many put money into a pot to cover the misfortune of the few. Um, but as data becomes more accessible to insurers, they're drilling deeper and deeper down. Uh, and to give you an example, there are four community circuses in the country. Um, as far as we can figure it out, they used to be part of a much broader uh, arts and cultural group. And risk was calculated on the basis of that, and they paid a premium on the basis of that. Mm. Um, but more recently, they're being told that the four community circuses in the country essentially have to pay their way as a separate sector. That's just not viable in Ireland's claims environment. Uh, And so they're really struggling in terms of getting cover in. And that experience has been replicated time after time now. Right, so that could be the end of the circus uh, and every circus, uh, meaning the circus. Uh, It may not be possible to hire a bike or go uh, karting or ice skating, uh, as uh, the case may be. There's a a lot of... uh, uh, business who just can't get a, a quote, you're saying. Uh, why is it? Are, are, are they too much of a liability? Well, this is the thing. Ireland is one of the safest countries in Europe. Any of the metrics that are available uh, would say that we're safer than the vast majority of other European countries. So it's not that these, I mean, these are often described, some of the ones you've listed are described as risky sports or risky risky activities. In Ireland, typically they're not. Um, but we have a poor reputation, that has to be said, because there has been a propensity to sue um, for overinflated compensation often yeah. uh, over the years. And that trend is is really only starting to mend itself at the moment um, because of all the reforms that have either gone through or are, are pending. Um, but unfortunately for the sectors you listed and many others, and particularly yeah. including quite a few in the voluntary and community sector, um, we're not convinced that they're going to be able to get cover anyway. Um, And that's why we're calling on government to get involved. Now, we don't do this lightly because the last thing we want is another uh, cost um, for government to have to bear. Um, And we're not looking for uh, the government to set up an insurance company. Uh, We have experience in that area and it didn't work out well over the years. Mm -hmm. But what we are looking for is for government to talk to the insurers and come up with a way of making sure that if a community centre or a disability charity or uh, a group of ice skating rinks um, or whatever is deemed useful or necessary uh, will be able to get affordable cover um, in some way, shape or form. And there are plenty of models out there uh, to use. So, for example, uh, in the UK now, they have a, a, a business called Flood RE. Uh, and for homes that cannot get covered. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
Tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at lifemd.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Because they're in a, a flood area, uh, they will provide affordable cover in a joint venture between government and the insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of... Um, innovative thinking we're looking for in Ireland now. Okay, but if children aren't falling off trampolines or bouncy castles or whatever the case is with these different sectors, why is it the insurance companies won't take the company's monies? Because the sectors are so small, um, this trend, is, as I say, of micro-sectoring, um, it, it makes sense from an insurer point of view because they can make sure that every sector they insure is profitable. Mm. Um, but like I say, those sectors are getting smaller and smaller. Now, that makes sense uh, probably in a very big economy like Germany or the UK. Uh, but by the time you get to Ireland, which is a very small economy, from the get-go and then you start drilling down to sectors like buy car shops or uh, recycling centres or ice skating rinks Mm. these are sectors that are so small that it's just not commercially viable to uh, insure them and to go to the the effort so to speak of insuring them Am I I wrong Peter in in thinking that sounds like uh, the insurance industry saying uh, you, you can take out insurance if you're not going to claim. Well, no, they're just not insuring them. Yeah, yeah, but do you, know, do, do you know what I mean? That they'll insure people who won't claim, uh, but if there's a, a risk of a, a claim, uh, they won't insure them. Yes, to, to a certain extent. But I mm. think what, it, it, what it, it is essentially is just the size of this economy and what's sustainable and what's not. Um, and the, the governments are killed telling us that they cannot interfere with the commercial decisions of insurers mm. uh, due to European law. And the insurers are saying, look, it, we'll insure the bigger sectors. Um, we're not going to look at the very small sectors. Mm. So there's a kind of a um, picking and choosing element to that. Um, and as commercial entities, I'm, I'm assuming that their shareholders are applauding that sort of approach. But okay. it's discarding whole sectors of Irish society. So if we want to protect the fabric of Irish society, and if we want the kind of things that you've listed to still be here, mm. 
in a few years' time, uh, then there has to be some sort of hybrid response uh, involving the government and the insurers. There's been an awful lot of damage, uh, I think, uh, to our international reputation as a a tourist destination because of the cost of renting out a a car. Uh, You list car rental in your 45 sectors. Uh, Is insurance a part of the huge cost of rental? And by all accounts, it's more significant in Ireland than any of the of the other markets that uh, car rental companies operate in in Europe. Okay, uh, and we've uh, some very important. They're all important services, uh, depending on uh, who you speak to. I'm sure a lot of children would hate the idea of never being able to get a bouncy castle. Uh, but we're talking about things that are essential here as well: uh, domestic violence services and nursing homes. Yes, and really struggling to get cover uh, at this stage. So, uh, you know, some of the sectors, in among 45 sectors, there there will be ones that are viewed as important by some uh, and not by others. But uh, essentially, when you put them all together, Mm -hmm. they are critical parts of the the fabric of Irish society, both commercial Mm -hmm. and voluntary community sectors. Um, So we have to come up with a model for figuring out, right, well, these are worth protecting. Now, there's a decision there, but like, there are so many parts of uh, state aid or assistance from the state or hybrid models where a decision is made, okay, uh, you have an issue, uh, it needs to be addressed, and we're going to help you. Um, and and that's what we're calling on government to do, is to say, look at these sectors, Um pick the ones which are important to protect, and I would argue that the majority of them are, uh, and uh, let's see how we can make sure that they can get affordable insurance. Okay, Um, just a a text from somebody who says uh, it's wrong to say the cost of motor insurance is coming down. Their daughter is 27 with a full licence, no claims. Her insurance went up by almost 60 euro. Uh, The reason is the type of car, uh, where she lives, her age and so on. Uh, I I guess uh, when you change cars, you'll see an increase sometimes or a decrease other times. Yeah, well, I said all things being equal, um, insurance premiums are coming down and the CSO are tracking it down by about 12% at this stage. Our own survey is tracking it down on average by about 12%. But if you change any element of the uh, of what you're looking for insurance for, uh, then typically you get hit with an increase. Um, but yeah, if your car is the same, if you if you haven't moved, uh, then insurance is dropping okay. for cars. Okay, uh, most cars, uh, not for younger yeah. drivers. Um, well, we're starting to see it okay. benefit the younger drivers to a certain extent as well. But obviously, your your listener's daughter has a has had a different experience. Mm-hmm. But on average, um, we're starting to see insurance coming down. But of course, it has to be noted, Michael, that there's fairly healthy competition uh, among insurers uh, insuring uh, private motorists, um, and that's not the case in the kind of sectors that we're talking about. Uh, historically, there's been a mass exodus of insurers from the liability sector. Um, that was exacerbated by Brexit. Um, so that's why it's so important to get additional competition back into the market now. OK, Peter, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Peter Boland is Director with uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Members of CRU, the Commission uh, for Regulation of Utilities and uh, the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, are to appear before uh, an Oireachtas committee tomorrow to discuss uh, the concerns there there are uh, about energy supply going into the winter. Pauline O'Reilly is a Green Party Senator, Chair of uh, the Green Party and a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Environment and Climate Action and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Senator. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. How concerned are you? Well, I think that it is a matter of concern. I think um, that the government are, are, are taking the steps in order to address it. But, you know, it's a matter of concern right across Europe. And indeed, anybody who has been out of the country over the summer will have seen um, the concerns that people have right across Europe. We're in better um, stead here in Ireland um, because we are not reliant on Russia for gas. And, you know, the, the real issue here around price in particular, I mean, there, there are two different, there are two different issues here, but around price in particular is because of uh, Putin holding the, the world to ransom, basically, and using um, energy as a weapon of war and, and restricting people's access to it. Is that but, compounding the problem or is it the problem? Well, the problem, uh, I suppose, you know, at, at its root, the, the problem is that we really should have our own indigenous supply of energy and, and then we're not reliant um, but I think that in Ireland in particular, a lot of the gas plants are older um, or, or indeed other fossil fuel plants. If you look at Money Point and Tarbert and last winter, a couple of them were down. Um, and so over the summer now, huge efforts have been made and they are all operational. So um, we would see it as low risk that there would be an issue around supply this winter. But that said, um, every effort need to be need to be made in order to ensure that, that our supply is good. But uh, most of our supply does actually come from uh, the UK of gas and about 50% of our electricity is reliant on gas. So that's really where the conversation is at in terms of, of supply. Um, there's also, of course, the fact that we should be probably reducing our demand on electricity anyway. And so I know that that CRU in particular um, have published proposals around that. And Mm. so I'm anxious and and did ask for them to come before us um, this week. And indeed, AirGrid will be there as well. And that it'll be more expensive uh, to use electricity from five to seven in the evening. Uh, And that's one of the things. But but one of the other proposals... I'm sorry, I was just going to to ask you, uh, that that, that could be for households. Uh, But... Um, is there a guarantee that households won't be cut off, that people won't have blackouts? Exactly, exactly, Michael. Yeah, that, and that was the point I was going to raise, that um, there is ordinarily there is a guarantee for a couple of months over winter, but this is being extended now under these proposals by CRU to six months for the most vulnerable and then to four months for everybody else so that they wouldn't be cut off. And there's also an extension of debt and a reduction then in the amount that people would have to pay. So uh, people could pay back the electricity costs over two years. But I mean, I still think that more needs to be done in this budget in order to help people with the cost of energy. Now, Ireland has actually, even though it doesn't feel like it again, has one of the cheaper electricity costs because of the actions taken Two and a half billion, indeed, was put in by the government for measures to help people with the co- with the costs. 
1300 this year for for those who are most vulnerable and um and that you know shelters people from three quarters of the cost but i don't i think it's fair to say that nothing is going to 100% um you know deal with the impact of the rising cost and it's that rising cost that isn't to do with supply at all in ireland and it isn't to do with our power stations. It isn't to do with any of those concerns about whether you know we would or wouldn't wouldn't have electricity cut off. It's really all to do with Russia, that rise. Um, and also, we would say that it is to do with gas companies um, making a lot of money because of this war as well. So that's why we in the Green Party are calling for a windfall tax on those large. Um, things like the the gas companies because um, our electricity companies are having to pay a huge price. Like it's, it's gone up, it's 14 times now. The price of gas is 14 times the average over the last decade. Mm. And that is having a huge impact. And on our small not much, Not much when well. you say it quickly, but people really are, are struggling uh, and there's no doubt about yes. it. It's a, a massive increase. Uh, and that windfall tax uh, that you're talking about uh, was also suggested uh, by the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. And uh, I don't think uh, that's a, a body that makes statements lightly, uh, but they were very critical or he was very critical uh, of the energy companies and what he called immoral profits because they're profits on the profits that they would have made Otherwise. That's right. And I do think it's reprehensible of companies to be doing that. And so I, I think that it has to be addressed. Now, obviously, in every kind of budgetary measure, you, you have to be really careful that you're not um, stopping investment, particularly in renewables, because if there's one way that we are going to get out of it, we can't just think about this winter. But we have to think overall, how do we become less reliant on that global market and on people like Putin? Um, and the, re- the way that we do that, the reason that the Greens went into government is because we have to make use of our renewable um, sector. And Ireland is, you know, at the forefront, really, when it comes to the amount of wind that we could have. So already we have contracted um, three gig- gigawatts of offshore re- or renewable um, power. And so that's more than in the last decade. We have to see that come to fruition. And it's not going to come to fruition this winter, which well, is why we do need to take measures. But it, it, but it mm. has to be invested in and we have to ensure that it continues to be invested. But would we need it uh, if we didn't have data centres in this country? And data centres account for 40% of the electricity, 14% of the electricity used in this country. And we're told that there's been warnings over a long period of time. In fact, going back to 2017, uh, about where data centres are located uh, because they've all been grouped together predominantly in the Greater Dublin area and that's putting an exceptional strain on the grid. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is correct and um, we have uh, worked hard um, to change the policy around data centres. We've also not given any new contracts for data centres since we went into government until these new guidelines were there. Mm. And it now means that if there are any uh, data centres, they actually have to give back energy. And they can do this. There are actually, you know, technologies to ensure that data centres, when they are producing energy, they can give back. But also, as you say, that location is really important. And co-locating and putting in renewable resources 
is essential. But what, what we what we absolutely have to see this winter is, um, and indeed all of the time, but particularly mm-hmm. this winter, we have to see that if those data centres are operating, that they have to, and there are times of high need, um, high demand on the grid, that they will have to fall back on their own resources. Um, and I think that that is essential. But, um, you know, any contracts that are already out there, it would be it would be irresponsible. We'd, we'd be taken to European courts if we were not to fulfil contracts that were already there before 2020 um, and before these new guidelines. And that's why we, we didn't want any new contracts until these guidelines were in place. Okay. So I think it's important but to remember that if people see you know, there are contracts. Mm, for but we, we, we've had a couple of data centres licensed in the Dublin area in the last couple of weeks and the guidelines won't come into play for some time, will they? Well, the guidelines are already in play, but uh, the, the critical thing there is that those data centres were all, already had contracts mm. before we went into government. But, but, but it's and those it's data centres. Sure, um, and, 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 and I'm not taking away from the point uh, that uh, you've made uh, uh, about um, not entering into uh, new arrangements, but the data centres that are there are causing uh, this drain on the grid. Uh, and yes. it's, beca- it's because they are there that we're in this situation, isn't it? Well, I don't think that's, I mean, I, the, the, the situation that we're in isn't because of the data centres. And, you know, uh, I mean, when the, the price of electricity, the, pro- the price of gas mm. isn't related to the data centres. But certainly the, the demand, you know, the concerns around supply of energy, which yeah. are as I say, said earlier, are a separate issue. Okay, but 14% of the demand... We have concerns about the data centres mm. from that point of view, mm. absolutely. And but that's why I think they have to be, they, they have to be, um, you know, forced to fall back on their own energy supplies and not on the grid okay. when demand is high. And uh, there's been a lot of commentary that... Uh, this has been known for some time that there is this demand on, on the grid. Uh, were you uh, surprised that the Taoiseach saying he was surprised to learn that there was such a high demand? Well, um, you know, I can't speak for the Taoiseach. I think, um, you know, may- maybe maybe he was surprised with some of the detail. Um, certainly we, we have had CRU and AirGrid into us you know, many times in the Climate Committee. Um, now, they were all due, indeed, mm. CRU and Airgrid and the Minister were all due into us in September anyway, but some of us had wanted that to be brought forward and that's why they're coming in tomorrow and I think it's it's the right thing. Or they, you know, because we're actually the Oversight Committee for the mm. CRU in particular. Um, but I think that going back to 2019, there was um, a failed auction and, the, and again, that was before we were in government, but there was a failed auction for additional uh, power, additional gas. And that did create some of the issues that we are now seeing around um, energy supply. And, um, you know, and the the other point was that that, that was supposed to take the place of some of those older power generators. Okay. So, uh, so the efforts have been made to bring them up to scratch. And last year was a particular issue with a couple of them down for a long period of time. And that is now no longer the case. But I am looking forward to hearing from CRU because mm. ultimately they do have responsibility in this area and um, and they will be questioned 
very hard by all of us. I'm sure, I'm sure. Uh, And there'll be a lot of interest in it. Uh, Stay with me for a second, if you will, because last week I spoke uh, to a former minister for the environment, Dennis Nocton, uh, and I asked him if he was surprised by the Taoiseach's comments. Uh, I think you might be interested in, in hearing some of his response, Senator. No, I'm not surprised, but I am very surprised to hear some of the commentary that I'm hearing from some of our senior politicians in this country uh, at the moment. And I made the the Cabinet aware uh, of these issues as far back as 2017 uh, in terms of the number of of data centres that we were allowing onto the grid uh, at the time. Uh, And uh, in fairness, the uh, you know, the people that were managing the grid, air grid and that would have flagged that up, not just to uh, me as energy minister, uh, but to many of the other relevant uh, government agencies, such as the IDA uh, and so forth at the time. Uh, and they have highlighted this consistently since that. Right. That's uh, former minister Dennis Nocton. Uh, it would appear from what Dennis Nocton was saying, Senator O'Reilly, uh, that uh, warnings went unheeded. Well, I don't think that there's any surprise in relation to data centres. Otherwise, we wouldn't have put um, an effective moratorium for the last two years on new contracts. And there, so, as I say, there have been no new connections, no new contracts for the last couple of years. Um, so that's, you know, th- that means that it wasn't certainly wasn't unheeded by us and the Greens. No, but I and think I, and that, I'm not it, saying I think that, that it's fair. Yeah, no, but actually, in 2017, when you weren't in yeah. government, uh, should the government yeah. have acted and maybe introduced a moratorium then? Well, look, I I think you know the the, the I don't I don't agree with the pre- previous guidelines that you know opened us up to, at such a large scale to data centres. Um, but I think that there's a real opportunity. I mean, there's nothing you know there's nothing really wrong with data centres if they can produce power for us. Mm. And I think that that's the that's the key thing we have to remember. Or if they're co-located in an area where there is, you know, a renewable um, source because actually, unless you have um, large kind of, you know, large industries um, that need power, particularly we say in the west of the country, hmm. then you don't have the renewable um, industries setting up there. So there is an opportunity for some areas where, um, but it has to be, it has to be the responsibility of the data centre to um, to bring that so that it, it ensures that it has all of its energy met by renewables and it's producing those renewables and therefore it's bringing some to, something to the country. Um, but we also do need industry um, and that's why I say that it is important that when it comes to contracts that are already signed, um, we can't be the country that says we're not going to fulfil our contracts because that is a knock-on on other industries, not just... Um, on digital, uh, so so that's why it, it is important that we don't okay. just renege on contracts either. Okay, well, your committee meets uh, tomorrow uh, earlier than expected, uh, being recalled uh, because of uh, the concern. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of interest in it and I'm sure we'll be hearing a, a lot uh, about uh, the proceedings uh, tomorrow as well. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always. Thank you, Michael. That's uh, the chair of uh, the Green Party, Senator Pauline O'Reilly, who's a, a member of the Oireachtas Committee on the Environment and Climate Action. 
Simon Coveney, the Minister for Defence, is in Prague today where he's meeting defence ministers from across uh, the European Union. One of the issues uh, that uh, the defence ministers will be discussing is a mission to train the Ukrainian military. The uh, Department of Defence told the Irish Times last week that it's too early to say if Ireland will be involved in this mission if it goes ahead. Uh, but let's uh, speak to Jim Roach, who is uh, the PRO for the Irish anti-war movement. Uh, a very good morning to you, Jim, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, the Ukrainians certainly have a, a battle on their hands, and I'm sure that goes without saying. Uh, but should the Irish army be involved in training Ukrainian troops? Good morning, Michael. Thanks for talking to us again. Uh, in short, no, uh, um, I, I think Simon Coveney really has, I mean it was a very worrying statement because it hinted that, that they, they were seriously considering this and uh, we have to remind them Ireland is a neutral country we really wonder what part of Article 29 of Bun doesn't understand uh, we've argued consistently since the start of this war that the Irish government should be involved in trying to find, uh, use diplomacy and trying to find peaceful methods to end the conflict. And uh, there's now this acceptance. What we're reading now in the newspapers and hearing on on radio and TV is that uh, uh, this war is going to go on for a really long time. And uh, it's become this awful war of attrition. There's a violent stalemate has happened. And uh, both sides seem talk about victory mm. and you know can't win in my view but they neither can they lose you know from their point yeah. of view so but, well, it's, can, 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 it's like it's, it's more and more like the first world war except with uh, incredibly sophisticated uh, weaponry if we give the ukrainian support though can we shorten the time frame of this conflict i mean we're looking at all sorts of problems uh yeah, you may be limited. Uh, I read over the weekend to, to the amount of fuel you'd be able to buy in a, a garage. No, uh, you yeah. might you mightn't be able to turn on the lights, uh, or uh, you mightn't be able to uh, afford to turn on the lights. Uh, and people could be cold and, and so on. Uh, and not only that, uh, there's the prospect of a, another Chernobyl, isn't there? If uh, well, the, if the Russians exactly. hit this nuclear plant, yeah. uh, it would would not be in our interest to train Ukrainian troops. No, no, absolutely not. Uh, look, I, I we I acknowledge everything you said that this is a disaster for Ukraine and uh, the Russian Federation is is the cause of this unjustified invasion. Whatever grievances they had should have been taken to the UN and tried to, to resolve them there. The war is a key driver now in the food and fuel inflation uh, around the world. So it's, it's a disaster for the world as well. I mean, Europe alone relies on 40% of its gas from, from Russia. So it's hugely problematic. But um, Let's look at the positives that happened uh, five weeks ago on the 22nd of July. Since the the pact was signed uh, about getting the grain out of Ukraine, Russian, Ukrainian, Turkish and UN diplomats are engaged in coordinating the the grain export uh, from Odessa and possibly other ports, I'm not sure. Uh, So the obvious question we have to ask is why not build on this? Why not build on that wonderful exercise in diplomacy that, uh, you know, allowed 
allowed grain to be exported to the, the countries in, 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 in desperate need of it. And that, that was a sign of hope. At the same time, the first discussion occurred between Blinken, uh, the US uh, Secretary of State, and Lavrov, the uh, Russian uh, foreign minister. The first call since the war started. Yeah. And one, one has to ask, why are they not talking more to each other? Very interesting article by Patrick Coburn, uh, in the, it was on the Stop the War Coalition website. He writes for the Independent, so it may have been there first. But it, it, just to come back to, to the second part of your question, mm. this risk of, of nuclear exchange between NATO and Russia, he's saying it's now far greater than at any time since the height of the Cold War. Mm. And it's eclipsed by the chance of this accidental catastrophe uh, at the Russian-occupied nuclear power plant of Zaporizhia. And that, of course, we've been hearing a lot about this. So that's the ne- surely that's the next stage of negotiations that has to occur here mm. to demilitarize that nuclear plant. I mean, the 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 threat of an accident even is is so shocking when you're in surrounded by this war zone. Uh, it, it won't be described. It won't be described as an accident if a bomb causes a radiation leak, uh, and you'd wonder uh, what. No. Is going on in the minds of anybody who uh, directs weapons of destruction, of mass destruction like that at a, a nuclear power plant. I, I know, Michael, and of course, in, a way, in many ways, it won't be an accident. That the war isn't an accident, mm. but uh, it's it, 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 we we have this situation now where we have a nuclear power plant right in the middle of a war zone, and both sides are claiming that that they're fire, you know, that they're. Mm that they're firing uh, missiles at each other and, and in, in danger of creating an accident. So my understanding is that both sides have accepted that the, uh, that the you know, that I'm sorry, I forget the name of the organization, the, the nuclear... Um, uh, Separation. Yes, mm-hmm. no, but, but the actual organization that oversees uh, all nuclear power oh, plants, yes. yeah. mm. both, both sides have accepted that, that the representatives from them can visit uh, I think Russia is still saying, but we're, they're not willing to demilitarize the zone. But surely that's the next. Uh, I mean, it's, this is so critical now, mm. so dangerous for the world. Because once, once one, uh, once. They're, they're, yeah, what was that are, over the weekend? They, they, they refused to sign uh, up to that commitment not to use uh, nuclear uh, as a, a weapon of war. Uh, but uh, regardless of what both sides are saying, somebody isn't telling the truth uh, because the place is being shelled, it seems, on a regular basis over the last couple of months uh, at this stage. Uh, and undoubtedly, there's great concern about that and uh, great concern that the Russians uh, won't continue with this offensive. And I gather that's why the European defence ministers are suggesting that they be able to assist the Ukrainians by helping to train the military. There's a, a very interesting question for you, I, I think, uh, Jim, from Joseph Burrell, uh, the EU's foreign policy chief. Uh, and he was quoted in the Irish Times uh, uh, saying uh, there's training missions all over the place in 17 countries, uh, apparently. Uh, and he, he's wondering why, for example, would Irish soldiers train uh, the uh, Malian uh, army, uh, because there's missions there, uh, and wouldn't uh, train the Ukrainians. Yeah, uh, I read the article, Michael, and I, I don't think he mentioned Irish soldiers. He was talking about EU soldiers, but are you, you're right to raise it. Our, our, our Irish soldiers are there. 
been involved in this. We're against that. We stated at the time uh, it's absolutely outrageous that Irish soldiers have been involved in a former French uh, colony. Where it's been stood down, hasn't it? Because uh, yes, yes, it has. Yeah, that's, my, that's my understanding. Because so, because the Malian government uh, was guilty of terrible atrocities. And I, I, I know I asked Simon Covey on the on this program uh, fairly recently uh, if uh, funding the Malian army against a revolution was a little a bit like uh, training the British army against our martyr dead. He said it was an outrageous question. Well, it, look, it was outrageous that the Irish troops were sent there. In our view, it, like our Irish troops have done really good peacekeeping uh, around the world. We obviously think of Lebanon. Uh, but th- th- that was not a moment of uh, of uh, virtue for them by any means, and uh, it was wrong that they were there. But just just to go back to mm. Ukraine, everything that that the, that the EU governments, and the US and UK governments are doing is escalating this war. There is no attempt at trying to find peace, and there was that moment of hope, and it's still um, still working. The, the the grain is being exported, and I would question why not build on this. And anyway, just go back as well. Yeah. First point as well, Ireland is a neutral country, mm. and uh, Article 29 is very clear. Like it's, it talks about uh, using the, the Pacific settlement of international disputes. So why is the Irish government, led by Simon Coveney as Minister for Foreign Affairs, why is he not calling in the ambassadors and saying, you guys need to start talking? Because mm. to go back to the article by Patrick Coburn, he, he quotes uh, Sir Stephen Lovegrave, who's the UK's National Secretary Advisor, in a speech he made uh, back in July. He said one of the biggest problems, the risk of nuclear conflict has increased because of the breakdown of communications between the West, Russia and China. And uh, uh, during the Cold War, they used to have these what they called escalatory uh, ladders. And now instead we have escalatory wormholes where everyone's gone down a wormhole. And there's these unpredictable failures in the fabric of deterrence causing rapid escalation to strategic conflict. So that's the danger we're in. Maybe so, but at the same time, neutral country or otherwise, I doubt that there's anything unconstitutional about Irish troops training Ukrainian troops if it's not unconstitutional for Irish troops to train Malian troops. Okay, I'm not a legal expert, yep. Michael, but I, I would question that. I would certainly question the spirit of, of it's, it's certainly going against the spirit of Article 29 of the Constitution. It's going against the spirit of the recent polls that have showed Ireland, the, the majority of people in Ireland uh, want Ireland to remain neutral. And, and I, we, we don't see that, I mentioned this before, we don't see that as sitting in the fence. We believe Ireland should engage positively. Uh, with w- w- with the world and uh, l- like l- lots of lots of um, people are calling for peaceful negotiations. We're just not hearing about it in the media. For for, for example, the Pope has, uh, some of the South African leaders have. Uh, you know, so why on earth is Ireland doing this uh, as a you know as a non-aligned country as it were? So that's the big question, and I'm not sure how much time I have left, Mike, mm-hmm. but I would like to mention we are launched, along with the Peace and Neutrality Alliance, the Irish Anti-War Movement, and along with several uh, TDs and Senators, we're launching the Irish Neutrality League next week. We, we'll have a launch in, in Dublin, so we'll, we'll let you know about that. Okay. And it's a civil society campaign to bring pressure on the Irish government to assert Ireland's neutrality positively on the world stage to be a voice for peace and human rights and oppose wars and militarization. Okay. And uh, we will hopefully have a number of prominent Irish people signed up to that. 
by next week and um, we'll be calling on the Irish government you know to he should, like they should be calling in the ambassadors you know the, the Ukrainian the Russian the, the US ambassadors UK ambassadors to say you know sit down and talk about this just like you did over the uh, getting the grain out five weeks ago which is working Mm. I mean, it's absolutely ludicrous what's going on and so okay. dangerous. Obviously, firstly to the Ukrainian people, but also to the whole world. OK, we look forward to that launch, the Irish Neutrality League, uh, and hearing a, a little bit more about what's uh, intended uh, by those who do sign up to it next week. We leave it there for the moment, though, Jim, and thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme today. Jim Roach is uh, the PRO with the Irish Anti-War Movement. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, we had a text from a a listener when I was speaking to Peter Boland of uh, the Alliance for Insurance uh, Reform, and I read the text uh, to Peter uh, about our our listener's daughter's motor insurance going up in price instead of coming down, as should be the case, a 27-year-old who uh, was told that a number of reasons uh, for the increase, but one was the type of car, and I I took that to mean that it was a a different car, that she'd changed her car. Uh, They've been back in touch to say, no, that wasn't the case. Uh, I'm not sure uh, Peter Boland uh, would say that insurance has come down. Uh, Maybe it's a thing of shopping around. It's a a terrible thing, but uh, when you shop around, you tend to get cheaper quotes uh, than the people uh, who you would imagine would be uh, rewarding you for being loyal. Uh, we had a lot of people in touch with us today, actually, uh, and I'll bring you some of uh, those comments now. Lorraine was in touch with us about the school buses, and she says government should hang its head in shame because of the chaos that is surrounding the issue with school buses this year. It's the same thing every single year. It causes parents no end of stress. I think it's most likely an awful lot worse this year uh, because of what was an unintended consequence, if you like. Uh, But the idea of giving the places to children free of charge, a ticket that would ordinarily cost €500, led to a surge in applications, a record number uh, of applications, 130,000 applications, 44,000 plus uh, were first-time applications, and some of them uh, probably were children who were in school last year but got a lift or whatever they did. uh, And uh, now, because the ticket is free, they've applied for a ticket, meaning that those who were getting the bus last year, because it's a lottery system, might not actually win the lottery and get the seat on the bus, which leaves real problems. But Lorraine says, for once, it would be nice to see a state-run programme, one that works well, it's run smoothly and without hitches, uh, but she says she doesn't see that happening in her lifetime. Cynical, perhaps, uh, but uh, realistic, uh, quite uh, probably. Sue, thank you for your call. Uh, Sue was a a little shocked listening to the programme. We were speaking with Nolene Blackwell of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis uh, Centre about children sexually abusing other children. Uh, Sue said she didn't realise how prevalent a a problem this is. And she says, if she's to be honest, she thought it was frightening to hear that it is so prevalent this morning. She says parents need to be alert to watch out for the kind of things that children are accessing online. What is it they're watching? You should be monitoring their online activity because kids nowadays have access to pretty much everything that they want and this is only exasperating the problem, says Sue. Thanks for your call as well to the programme today, Sue. uh, Another call that came to us was uh, from Tina and Tina rang us about house prices and she says she feels 
very sorry for anyone who's trying to get their foot onto the property ladder. It's a bloodbath out there. It's showing no sign of improving either. It's no wonder we're seeing so many of our young people, skilled young people, leaving this country on a, a weekly basis. Why would they stay here when they'll never be able to afford to live here? Thanks, Tina. Um, it's getting all the more difficult. I think going back years, uh, a lot of people lived at home uh, until they bought their first house or close to it. Now, of course, people are, are, are renting. But the cost of rent, uh, if you're paying a 1000 or 2000 or whatever it is, and then trying to save to get a deposit, and the cost of living, as uh, the myhome.ie survey shows, is going through the roof, it's feeding into or. Uh, it's, 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 it's taking away from your savings uh, and it's uh, making it all the more difficult uh, to reach uh, the prices that are being asked today, which are as high as they've ever been in this country. Sarah in touch with us about house prices as well. Thank you, Sarah, for your call. Sarah says she doesn't mind or she doesn't actually dream of owning her own home here anymore. That's uh, not even a consideration. She just dreams of continuing to be able to afford her rent. That's the best that she feels she can hope for. The property market in this country is a a joke. And Sarah says it's driving people, young people, to emigrate. Davy in touch this morning with us. Thanks to Davy for your call to the programme. Davy says it's another year and another school bus crisis. The same old story every year. He welcomes the fact that the fees were waived, but he feels it's important that priority is given to the students who were already using the service. It's not fair that they might now be at risk of losing their seats. I think there's a big question mark over 10,000 unavailable seats uh, and 10,000 children who'll be hoping to get a seat or thereabouts. I don't know if something can be done. The minister believes uh, that she can convince Busseran to take on more drivers and put more buses on the roads to accommodate everybody. Time will tell. John, thank you for your call to the programme today too. John says he's resigned himself to the fact that when his teens leave college, they'll be emigrating uh, to make a, a better future for themselves. How could he expect them to stay in Ireland when they'll be crippled just trying to get by financially on a daily basis? Never mind uh, the idea of owning a home uh, and saving up and qualifying for a mortgage and being able to pay that off. He says he and his wife plan to enjoy having their kids close to home for as long as possible before they're forced to leave the country. Janie. Thanks, John. Uh, Agnes was in touch with us today about the cost of living. She says that as a parent and a grandparent herself, she worries every day about her family and how the cost of living is impacting on their ability to live. House prices are the stuff of nightmares. Fuel costs, energy costs are horrendous and only giving... headaches to people uh, apart from the fact that they're going to get worse. Even going for your shopping, your groceries, it's becoming stressful. Uh, People are pushed to the pin of their collar and it's starting uh, to cause real problems with no sign of it easing. Agnes wants to see more action from the government to help ease people's burdens. We cannot continue like this. Thanks Agnes uh, for that and for your call to the programme. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. A lot of people in touch with us today. We've run out of time though so we have to make that the last word and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.